in 2 Samuel chapter 6, starting in verse 1. David again assembled all the fit young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his troops set out to bring the ark of God from Baal Judah. The ark bears the name, the name of the Lord of armies, who's enthroned between the cherubim. They set the ark of God on a new cart and transported it from Abinadab's house, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the cart and brought it with the ark of God from Abinadab's house on the hill. Ahio walked in front of the ark. David and the whole house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all kinds of fir wood instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, sistrums and cymbals. When they came to Nakon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. Then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah and God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence and he died there next to the ark of God. David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, so he named that place Outburst Against Uzzah, so it is today. David feared the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So he was not willing to bring the ark of the Lord to the city of David. Instead, he diverted it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. The ark of the Lord remained in his house three months, the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his whole family. It was reported to King David, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's family and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and had the ark of God brought up from Obed-Edom's house to the city of David with rejoicing. When those carrying the ark of the Lord advanced six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened calf. David was dancing with all his might before the Lord wearing a linen ephod. He and the whole house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of the ram's horn. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Saul's daughter Mishael looked down from the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent David had pitched for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings in the Lord's presence. When David had finished offering the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of armies. Then he distributed a loaf of bread, a date cake and a raisin cake to each one in the entire Israelite community, both men and women. Then all the people went home. When David returned home to bless his household, Saul's daughter Mishael came out to meet him. How the king of Israel honoured himself today, she said. He exposed himself today in the sight of the slave girls of his subjects like a vulgar person would expose himself. David replied to Mishael, It's before the Lord who chose me over your father and his whole family to appoint me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will dance before the Lord. I will dishonour myself and humble myself even more. However, by the slave girls you spoke about, I will be honoured. And Saul's daughter, Mishael, had no child to the day of her death. Well, uh, please keep your Bibles in front of you and uh, let's uh, enjoy what the Lord has to say to us this morning. Well, the lifeblood is the indispensable factor that gives it strength and vitality. Lifeblood. So the lifeblood of a local sporting club is its volunteers. The lifeblood of a school is its teachers. 
University of New South Wales tells me that moss is fundamental to a planet's health. And cash, or customer service, is the lifeblood of a business. What's the lifeblood of a church? What's that vital, indispensable factor of a church? Is it our support of global mission? Is it our kids' ministry? Is it our music? Is it our evangelism heat? All of those are great things. But there's something bigger. The lifeblood of God's people is their worship of the living God. Now that's far more than our singing. Worship is the response of the whole being. The heart, the soul, the mind, the strength to who God is and what he has done. It is enabled by the Holy Spirit, fixated on gospel truth and directed by God's self-revealing word. It involves personal and corporate expression. Every human is a worshipping being. Even the people you go to school or work with, they're worshipping beings. And God's people, we focus our worship on Jesus. Now in 2 Samuel 6, we see David restore the worship of God to the centre of Israel. And that's a bumpy ride, as Scott just read. And we're going to see that there's more to worship than just having it going in the right direction. And so point one, the most significant symbol. 2 Samuel 6 begins with David ruling a united Israel from Jerusalem and the Philistines are finally defeated. So the image is David's moved into the new house, he's unpacked the boxes and he's got rid of the vermin, right? What's next? Well, David gathers 30,000 young men, not for war, but for one task, Project Ark. We're going to return the Ark of God to the centre of the nation. As Emily shared before, the Ark was a gold-plated wooden box, 130 by 80 by 80, and it was made by Moses under the strict instructions of God. It had those gold rings on the side for gold-plated wooden poles to carry it. On top were the two cherubs, the angel creatures, and between those two cherubs is the mercy seat. And it's on that mercy seat that the blood was sprinkled when the sacrifices of atonement for sins were made. Inside the box were the Ten Commandments engraved on stone tablets. And as you look at it on the screen, it looks like just an ancient treasure box. But to Israel... It was the most important symbol of their relationship with Yahweh. And Yahweh is the name of their God. It was the most important symbol of Yahweh's relationship with them. What it symbolized was the presence of God with his people. It also revealed the character of God. The ark represented a God who was majestic. Because the ark was just his footstool. Because God is on the throne and he just puts his feet on the ark because he is the God who is ruling. It reveals there God is a speaking God. Because inside the ark is the record of his word, his will. The ark represents a holy God. 
because the ark lived in the holy of holies beyond all people, only allowed for one each year. And the ark represented a forgiving God because as the blood was poured on the top of the mercy plate, a holy God would forgive sinners. So Project Ark, it's not a political move. It's not David saying, I'm just going to put the religion under me and use it for my power. No, David was putting the worship of Yahweh, their majestic, pardoning, speaking God, right back into the centre of the nation. There was nothing more important, more joyous, than God's people gathered around their God for worship. And that's a pattern for us. Because do you know the ark represents Jesus? Jesus fulfills everything the ark represents. Because in Jesus, God took on flesh and walked our planet. If you want to look for the presence of God, you look at Jesus Because in Jesus is the majestic, pardoning, speaking God. And he rightfully belongs at the centre of God's church because there's nothing more important. There's nothing more joyous than God's people gathered around Jesus and his word and worship. That's why we turn up every Sunday and not every second Sunday or every third Sunday, or whenever sport's not on, or I can fit in my schoolwork. No, no, no. There is nothing more important than God's people circling God, for he is the most important, delightful thing in the universe. We are expressing that Jesus, not anything else, is the centre. Let's go back to Project Ark. Where was the ark? It was in a Binadab shed. It was in a shed 15 kilometres from Jerusalem where it had been collecting dust for 70 years. Why did Israel leave their most important symbol of the presence of God in a shed 15 kilometres away? Fair question. We've got to go back 70 years. Because in 70 years previously, the Philistines had defeated Israel and taken the ark away. So 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 22, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured. Now, the Philistines, they got the box and they put it in their temple, but they were messing with the holy God. So next to their temple, in their temple was their idols. Their idols kept tipping over, right? And then the nation started to get boils and plagues. Man, they could not get rid of this box fast enough, right? And so they sent it back on a cart. Remember that. They sent it back, a pagan nation sent it back on a cart, returned to sender. Israel celebrated with sacrifices, but then 70 Israelites looked into the box and died instantly. Now that was too much for Israel's leaders. So what did they do? They stuck it in a Binadab shed, collecting dust 70 years. Fast forward. Ready? David picks up the ark and he leads his version of the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade. We cannot imagine how big this was. Like this was incredible. 15 kilometres from a Binadad shed all the way to Jerusalem, 
The streets are lined, there's singing, there's dancing, there's laughter. All Israel are celebrating their majestic speaking, pardoning God as the ark moves to the center of the kingdom. Feel the crescendo. It's just getting louder and louder and louder and then it stops instantly. There was a bumpy threshing floor like the roads of orange. The oxen pulling the cart, carrying the ark, stumble. And the son of Abinadab, he reaches out to steady the ark so it would not fall on the dirt. And the Lord's anger broke out against one of Israel like it had broken out against the Philistines last week. Same word. 6 verse 7 in your Bibles. Then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah. And God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence. And he died there next to the ark of God. Now David, he also responds in anger. He's not angry at God. He's angry at what God had done. Because this was so extreme. So arbitrary it looked like. Uzzah, he was doing the right thing, wasn't he? Now, David, he is so unsure of what's going on, he puts it in another shed. They love their sheds, right? Okay, he puts it in Obed-Edom's shed and leaves it there. And then the crowd, 30,000 soldiers and the rest, they go home perplexed and let down. What in the world's God doing? Have you ever thought, is that the God I trust and follow? It's a question we ask at various points of our life, don't we? When we go through absolute foulness of life, suffering or persecution or just gross life, and we go, where's God? And what's he doing? Or we confront a passage of the Bible that really doesn't fit with how I want to live my life. We go, what, what is God doing? Can I say, whenever that happens to you, whenever you say, oh, is that the God I follow? God's always saying, pause. Because he wants to teach you something about himself. Because the death of Uzzah is a case study in the holiness of God. The box represented a holy God. Holiness means he is absolutely pure in everything he thinks and does. That means his love is holy. His justice is holy. His judgment is holy. And Yahweh is uncompromising in his holiness. And he was very specific on how his ark was to be transported and treated. Numbers chapter 4, simply, no look, no touch, no cart. That's what he said. No look, no touch, no cart. Numbers 4, Moses, you are to cover the ark. You are to carry it on the shoulders of the priests using those poles. And God did not want people to die. So he warned them, if you look with your sinful eyes into the holy ark, you will die. God is not out of control in this passage. He is not randomly killing an innocent dude. No, David David's worship of the holy God was too casual. He had copied the Philistines who had used a cart to move the ark. And he'd forgotten what had happened 70 years previously when Israelites looked into the ark. 
And he and Israel assumed that the dirt on the ground was more dirty than them. In this tragedy, God is calling David and Israel back to real worship. And real worship is one that, re- that understands the depth of our rebellion and the depth of his holiness. And so what David was understanding was how to fear the Lord. Now, fearing the Lord is not being terrified of God. It's not even being scared of God. Fearing the Lord is recognizing that God is God and we are not. And that God never is answerable to us. He is not a tame or fuzzy toy. He is holy. He is alone in purity and power. And to be a Christian is to be someone who fears the Lord. Who comes before God on their knees. Because from the knees we love him. From our knees we obey him. From our knees, we worship him. See Psalm 210? Serve the Lord with reverential awe. Three months pass. The ark, sitting in a shed, Obed-Edom, where its presence has led to blessing. Now, most likely, this was the blessing of life. God God is the God of life. So, crops really growing fast. Animals getting pregnant. Wow. Obed's wife, she's getting pregnant, right? Like this is a time of great blessing. And the news reaches David and prompts him to restart Project Ark. So all the people come back, line the streets. The ark, sorry, the cart is gone. Thank goodness. And the ark begins its journey. But then six steps. They stop again. And they offer a sacrifice. They say, we are a sinful people and we need help from a holy God. Israel are fearing God. The dominant note of the passage, verse 12, 14, 15, 16, is joy. Israel dance, Israel shout, Israel celebrate before Yahweh. And who's leading this? No, David's not in a corporate box. David is front and centre. Actually, what David's done is he's taken off his cloak, he's taken off his pants, he's taken off his boots, he's put on a linen ephod, which was the, which was the clothing of servants. And he is dancing with delight humbly before God. He is not a king first, he is a servant first. And he is thoroughly delighted in his Lord. He is celebrating with all his might. See the contrast? Who's in the corporate box? His wife, Mikhail. And she's looking down her nose with disdain. We'll come back to her. Verses 17 to 19, David is surprisingly playing the dual role of king. He's the leader and priest. What are priests? Priests are people who help people connect with God appropriately. And so what David is doing, David is making sure sacrifices happen, peace offerings, sin sacrifices. He offers a blessing to the whole people. He even gives them food. That dual role of king and priest follows the pattern of the very first king of Jerusalem, Melchizedek, 
who was a king and priest. And it points us forward to Jesus, who is the ultimate king priest, who offered himself as the sacrifice to enable people to come to God. Now, David returns home and he wants to bless, you know, his many wives. But um, Mikhail, she just gives him a mouthful. You know, she says, you dishonorable, vulgar, half-naked fool. Did you see the words there, how she's described? Nowhere she's described as David's wife in this passage. She's described as the daughter of Saul. Three times. And that's representing that she represents the house of Saul, the old way, versus the new way, which is the house of David. And so the house of Saul, the lifeblood of the house of Saul was dignity, respect, power and splendor. But the lifeblood of the house of David was the glory of God. That is what they wanted most of all. And so what David does is he responds saying, my audience is Yahweh, not you. I am more Yahweh's servant than Israel's king. And nothing will stop me dancing humbly before my God. This great passage ends with sadness, tears, because the blessings enjoyed by Obed-Edom were never going to be experienced by the house of Saul. Her childlessness means that the house of David will have no descendants of Saul in it. Now, in part two of Project Ark, we see a worshipping community rejoicing abundantly because of who God is and what he has done. Did you see there's absolutely no contradiction between fear and joy? There was no seatbelt holding back their affection for the Lord. They are before the Lord on their knees and they are rejoicing with their might because there's a bit more of Psalm 2, isn't there? Reserve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice without trembling. We also see the deep contrast between the kingdom of humanity and the kingdom of God. There is nothing new about secularism. I know it feels new, nothing new. The we don't need God is as old as Eve when she went her own way in the garden and it's as old as Michael despising God's dancing king. The world will always look down on you for trusting Jesus and rejoicing in Yahweh. And our worship this morning and each day looks utterly foolish. The temptation is to turn it back, turn it down, or even stop. Instead, we should listen to David. We've got an audience of one. We go to work with an audience of one. We go on holidays with an audience of one. He is the one we serve joyfully. Finally, we witness David at his impressive best. Gosh, he's good in this passage. He is a king, he's a priest, he's a dancer. Like, actually, he's only an imperfect shadow of Jesus. Because Jesus, who being fully God, made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, he humbled himself on a cross for us. Jesus is the king we worship and the king we follow. Protestant Reformation 
1500s, it changed the world. At its heart was a reformation of worship. What happened was Jesus had been pushed out of the centre of God's church and had been replaced by human traditions promoted by power-driven men. What the Reformation did was to try and make the main thing the main thing again, to put Jesus Christ, our majestic speaking, pardoning God, at the centre of his people. Why? Because the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Reformation never ends. Never ends. Because you and me, we're constantly tempted to put other good things at the centre. We are constantly put, tempted to put our church programs at the centre or our spiritual gifts at the centre or the worship of God through music at the centre or our desire for friendship at church or even caring for the poor. We want to put those at our centre because they are far more palatable to our world than a foolish saviour. Yet the lifeblood of God's church is not its programs. It's its worship. We are a worshipping community and we are all about the worship of Jesus Christ, our Saviour and our Lord. So as a worshipping community, we need to hear the warnings of Uzzah and Michael. They're two sides of the same coin, right? You understand that illustration? Like you, they both are the same question, just on two different sides. Ready? Have we, like Uzzah, forgotten the Lord is holy? Are we far too casual with Jesus? That has got nothing to do with what you wear to church. It's got nothing to do with whether you say formal prayers or informal prayers or use big words. None of that is what we're talking about here. What we're saying is, do we forget the one who loves us, who carries us like footprints, is a holy God. That Jesus is absolutely pure. That the oceans listen to Jesus. The devil cannot ignore him. Angels bow down to him. He holds the keys of judgment. And Jesus is so uncompromising in his holiness that it's holiness of God that made him walk to that cross to die for us. Because no sin can ever be ignored. None. And the only way we could be forgiven was the sacrifice of a holy saviour before God. I think there's an epidemic of casual worship in Western Christianity. Epidemic. And I see it in myself. Each morning I confess my sins to God. And that prayer is getting shorter and shorter. Why? I'm too casual. I'm far too comfortable listening to the words of Jesus. They don't make my heart worry. They should. My holy God is speaking to me. I see it in my brothers and sisters. These names aren't real. There's Bob. Jesus will compromise his will on sexuality to make Bob happy. It's casual worship. There's Jess. Jesus is her sounding board so she can find her inner self. It's casual worship. There's Chris. 
Jesus is the one who should be repenting of his out-of-date ideas. Casual worship. There's Jane. Jesus doesn't care if I do that sin over and over again and shrug my shoulders. It's casual worship. Do you need to repent of a casual attitude to God's king? Will you approach him on your knees and call out for help from a holy God? Flip the coin. Have we forgotten like Michael that the Lord is delightful? It's not about having music that gives you goosebumps, right? That's not what we're talking about here. It's not about having a supernatural experience, answer to prayer, not that. No, no. Does the Lord capture your heart? Do you love the Lord right here? William Gordon Blakey, 19th century Scottish preacher, after you make the qualifications, there are qualifications here, but can it be right to give all of our coldness to Christ and all our enthusiasm to the world? What he's saying there is, does the Lord Jesus move you less than UFC? Does the Lord Jesus move you less than NRL? Does the Lord Jesus move you less than soccer, coaching soccer? Does the Lord Jesus move you less than planning your next cruise to the Mediterranean? If so, then your worship will be cold and routine and bland. Our tribe, me and you, we are so worried what other people think that we miss the beauty and the power and the majesty of Jesus. He's so great. And he invites us to know him and worship him with everything. Let's pray. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above, praise the mount I'm fixed upon it, mount of God's unchanging love. Amen.